We are in a sermon series that's uh, taken from Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. If you can fill the desperate minute with 60 seconds of distance run. Kipling, when he writes that, suggests that not all minutes are created equal. Some matter more than other. Misaction, inaction in those minutes simply counts more. And so we're looking at a few characters within the Old Testament and a few moments in their life, pivotal moments that mattered more, where their action uh, really mattered. This morning, we look at Moses. And if you know anything about Moses, you know he lived a very significant life. Uh, his uh, career included such events as a burning bush, Red Sea, uh, saving God's people from the hand of Pharaoh. But of all the moments in Moses' career, I think this is the most important moment, where Moses, we see him in the middle. We see the Moses between God and man. Uh, the title of your sermon is The Intercessions of Moses. And we're going to go see that that goes both ways. Both Moses speaks to God about man and Moses speaks to God, man about God. So The Intercessions of Moses, a unforgiving moment in Moses' life, a moment that he ran or a minute in which he filled with 60 seconds. As we look at this story, we're going to find three things. We're going to find two priorities that Moses had, and these priorities are true for you and me, or they ought to be true for you and me. These are things that led to his, uh, the distance he run, his successful running of this unforgiving minute. What did Moses have? He had two priorities. These two priorities led to two very important practices. And again, these practices are things that should be true of you and me as well. And we're going to need to finally conclude with a reflection that these priorities that Moses had, his practices really point us to one person. So two priorities of Moses. What, did, what, what were Moses' priorities that enabled him to fill this unforgiving minute with 60 seconds of distance runs? Here were Moses' two priorities. The first priority was people, and the second priority was God. We're going to be looking at Moses, Exodus chapter 32 through 34, so you'll, be, you'll find it helpful to turn there. Uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, easy to find, the 32nd chapter. Two priorities for Moses in Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34 were people and God. Let me set the context for us just a little bit. Moses has uh, brought God's people out of the land of Israel. Moses is now, uh, the people of God are now in the desert. Moses has ascended a mountain, Mount Sinai, in order to, uh, to gain the Ten Commandments. And while he is up on the mountain, the people underneath him fall and fail spectacularly. And in the next three chapters, due largely to Moses, God's people are restored. They're set back on the right track. Disaster is averted and largely due to the, what? The intercessions of Moses. So let's look at the priorities that Moses had. God and people. Let me explain what I mean. Over the next few chapters, 32, 33, and 34, Moses makes no less than seven trips up and down the mountain. Up the mountain to spend time with God. Down the mountain to spend time with people. Moses' use of time reveals his priority. Further, Moses' passion reveals his priority. In verse 13, he prays to God, relent. 
He prays for the people to God. Relent from your disaster, disaster against these people. Remember Abraham, Isaac. Remember Israel, your servant. Hear the priority of people. God, I care for these people. Relent. He's passionate about them. Yet, in the next uh, verses, 25 through 29 of the same chapter, reveal his passion for God as Moses punishes the people for whom he had just prayed. The man of God, Moses, had two important priorities. Man, humanity, men and women, and God. So here's our opening point. The people of God, you and me, our lives should be dominated by two important priorities. People and God. Now I know that sounds kind of obvious, but let me just share a personal illustration to underscore the importance of these priorities, people and God. About a month ago, I was in Colorado Springs for a memorial service for my father. I mentioned in the past that he passed away in October. He was uh, memorialized at United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs just a month ago. Now, while I couldn't make it through a, a homily or sermon at his funeral, I thought I could make it through a reflection at uh, this memorial service, and for the most part, I made it through. Uh, and I reflected at one line that's very common in almost every obituary. It was a, it was a part of my father's obituary, and it said, uh, person X, in this case, Buzz Glade, died how? He died at peace. Now, that's sort of a strange thing to include in an obituary because by any measure, death is not peaceful. Even with the advances of modern science and medicine, death is still very, un it's painful. And certainly the results of death are tumultuous for those whom are closest uh, to, the, to the, the one who is lost. So in what sense can we say that anyone dies at peace? Physically, emotionally, death is not a peaceful thing. But I do not believe it is wishful thinking. I believe we can say that someone died in peace. And when we say that, we do not mean that their death was painless, nor the impact of their loss insignificant. Rather, that phrase, he died, she died at peace, means that they were at peace with those things that were most important. And what are those things that are most important? People and God. And if one is at peace with people and God, maybe not all people, that's a high bar, but if one is at peace with most of the people in their lives, and if one is at peace with God, then it is absolutely true, in no way winking at reality, to say that they died at peace. What are the priorities for the people of God, God and people? I share this personal illustration to underscore a very basic point. I want you to feel the weight of these twin priorities. A good life, a peaceful death, is not the result of what you accumulate. It is not the result of financial success. A good life and a peaceful death 
are not the result of a successful and an impactful career. Now, those things are all important. Those things are all great, and I hope those things are true for me. I imagine you hope those things are true for you as well, but if you have those things, accolades, impact, success, but you do not have the other, peace with God and peace with those around you, then what do you have? And what would you trade to have them? Two priorities for the people of God. People and God. Now as we hear that, we think, may think, gosh, this, I'm not much of a people person. Or you may think I'm not that spiritual. There's some people who seem to be spiritually inclined or some people who just like being in the company of others. I want to encourage us that we all can develop a taste for being with people. You can develop a taste for being with God, develop a taste for being with people. Quick story. As a young man, I quickly, uh, distinctly remember sitting in a restaurant and ordering my first cup of coffee. 1991, 92, Starbucks had just become a thing. And I was in Denny's, and Denny's is not renowned for their good coffee, but I thought, well, I, you know, I guess this is what adults do, so I managed to develop a taste for coffee. And it didn't take long before I developed more than a taste, uh, something that could be more accurately described as an obsession with coffee. And then, and then some years later, in an impulsive and misguided moment, I decided I would give up coffee for Lent. And it was the most miserable 40 days of my life. <laughs> I've yet to g discern any tangible spiritual benefit from that discipline. <laughs> and I did it the hardcore way. Some people take breaks on Sunday. No, 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 I went straight through. Ash Wednesday to Easter morning. So it was with great anticipation that I look forward to that first cup of coffee on Easter morning. And to my abject horror, I discovered that I had lost my taste for coffee. Tragic, isn't it? <laughs> I share that illustration only simply to underscore you can develop a taste for almost anything. I guess not everything. There's some tastes that simply defy attraction, but you can develop a taste. How do you develop a taste for being with God? If one of the two priorities of the people of God, if the measurement of a peaceful life and a good life and a peaceful death and a good life will be peace with God and, and peace with people, how do you develop a taste for being with God? I don't think many of us come by it naturally. I think it is a taste that has to be developed. Let me share with you another illustration. I'm pursuing a doctoral uh, degree from a Catholic University. I'm writing my thesis. And uh, we had our first lecture on writing a thesis. And so this professor is a doctor of English, PhD in English. He's speaking to every a classroom full of people my age, 45, most of whom had advanced degrees, masters, or something. And he said, this is about a two-hour lecture. And for the first 30 minutes, first class on writing a thesis, he said, I want to talk to you very slowly, very deliberately, I want to talk to you about the importance of a dedicated time. 
And then he handed us a calendar. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I want you to mark on your calendar those times that you can dedicate to the writing process. 30 minutes on this subject. Keep in mind all master's level students. Then he said, I want to talk to you about a dedicated space. And for the next 30 minutes, he talked about the importance of a space where you had your lamp just so, and you had your books just so, and the importance of a space. And then for the next 30 minutes, he talked about the importance of a ritual. And he went through all these great artists and literary types who had these crazy rituals, some of whom wrote in a in, a, uh, in their bathtub at 2 a.m., but they had their ritual. And then he concluded with this statement, do not go out and look for the muse. You know what the muse is? The muse is that Greek character that kind of floats around and it lights on, falls on you, and all of a sudden, shazam, you're able to write with brilliance. He said, do not go look for the muse. Be in the same spot at the same time, doing the same things, and the muse will find you. Maybe you can discern the direction of this illustration. How do you develop a taste for being with the people of God? I wish there was an easy way. In the latter chapter, section, latter chapter of this section, chapter 34, we're told of Moses meeting with God. 34, verse 34. We're told this, that Moses went to the same place, a tent of meeting. He took off his veil. He met with God time and time and time again. And we're all, we are also told that Moses' faced, face shone. It shone as a result of meeting with God. One commentator writes, unheralded and unsought, transformation happened to Moses, but transformation did not happen without Moses. God's transformation required Moses' perseverance. How do you develop a taste for being with God? Every evening, most evenings, I set up my coffee machine. Most mornings, stumble downstairs, flip on my coffee machine, sit in the same chair, read a few Psalms, read the book of Proverbs, a chapter. I, I wish there was a muse that would just light on my shoulder and enable me to write that dissertation. I wish there was a way you could shortcut the process and your face would shine. But apparently, our transformation requires our perseverance. Our perseverance in being with God. Same patterns, same habits, same chair, same cup of coffee. I just, in my experience, there are no ways to shortcut the process. But that's how you develop a taste for being with God. What about developing a taste for being with people? Do you have a taste for being with people? Maybe you're an introvert. Maybe you're an extrovert. Maybe you're a people. I think everyone should have a taste for being with people. Unfortunately, I did not mark this statistic that I'm about to share. So this from memory, from a source I can't recall, but. With that caveat, I think this will ring true. Between the year 2007 and 2017, our practice of hospitality fell by half. On average, in 2007, one home had 17 social engagements per year. 10 years later, that same home entertained only eight times. 
That's a decrease that suggests that we collectively are losing our taste for people. I simply want to encourage you and encourage me, myself, develop a taste for being with people. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. This is from his book, The Four Loves. Lewis writes, dogs and cats should be brought up together. It broadens their mind. By having a great many friends, I do not prove that I have a wide appreciation for humanity. You might as well say I prove my wit of literary taste by enjoying all the books in my own bookcase. The answer is the same in both. You chose those books, you chose those friends, of course they suit you. A truly wide taste in reading is that which enables a man to find something for his needs in any secondhand bookshop. The truly wide taste in humanity will similarly find something to appreciate in the cross section of humanity whom one has to meet every day. In my experience, it is affection that creates this taste, teaching us first to notice, then to endure, then to smile, then to enjoy, and finally to appreciate the people who just happen to be there. Made for us, thank God, no. They are themselves odder than you could have believed, and yet they are worth far more than we guess. A taste for being with people. Hear what Lewis writes, first notice, then smile, finally appreciate the cross-section of humanity that you just meet every day. Two priorities for the people of God, people and God. And these two priorities, these are two priorities that in the end matter. Matter more than any. Our neglect or attention to these priorities will determine the fullness of our life and the peacefulness of your death. So we must develop a taste for being with God and with being, for being with people. Secondly, these two priorities lead to two practices. Moses, whose two priorities were God and people, interceded. He brought these two together in two ways. First, he spoke to God about people, prayer. And next, he spoke to people about God, proclamation. So, pardon the numerous P's, but the two priorities of Moses led predictably to two practices of Moses, prayer and proclamation. Just a brief word on each. Moses prayed. He interceded. He brought God, he brought man and God together in his prayers. We see this in our passage that was read for us. Moses interceded, please God, spare these people. And notice how unashamed the Bible is to reveal the effectiveness of Moses' prayer. Moses prayed, spared them, and it worked. God accomplishes his changeless purposes, which he has determined through the prayers of his people. So friends, I just want to encourage you to pray. If your priorities are people and God, then it's in our prayers that we bring those two together. Talk to God about people. Talk to God about people who are sick, people who are lonely, people who are lost, people whom you love. Talk to people about God. Pray. The second practice, because his two priorities were God and people, he spoke to people about God. 
He interceded. He brought the two together. In church lingo, we would call this evangelization or proclamation. In my experience there, I've met two people who I would say are natural evangelists. One is Susan Yates, the other is Gitachu, our missionary partner. No one is safe around them. <laughs> Restaurants, gas stations, without any awkward cringe moments and with just a natural love and compassion, they are able to speak to people about God. Most of us benefit from the more reasonable expectation and encouragement from the Apostle Paul who writes to the church in Colossia and says, let your speech be gracious, season it with salt. That's how you are to speak to those who are outside the church. Just a little bit of salt. I was speaking to a chef who said 90% of cooking is just how much salt you put in it. If you think about it, it's kind of true, right? 90% of being a good chef is just how much salt you put in. 90% of how effective you are and I, are, I am in proclamation is just how much salt you put in your conversation. Quick example, I teach my, coach my boys' soccer team, trying to teach, teach my boys to kick with both feet. So I asked them, boys, how many feet did God give you? Now that's not a sermon, that doesn't even qualify as a thought, but it's just something to introduce the subject of God into the equation. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Talk to God about people. So these two priorities, both people and God, lead to two practices, prayer and proclamation. And you see these priorities in Moses and all the great men and women of the faith. And ultimately, you see these priorities reflected most clearly in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus is described as the Son of God and the Son of Man. His two great priorities were his Father in heaven and children on earth. And from these two great priorities come two great practices. He proclaims, he reveals God to man both by what he says and by what he does, his life, and death, and resurrection, reveal to us the tender mercy and compassion of God. He is the proclamation of God to you and me. And he intercedes in his prayers as well. All throughout the Gospels we read that Jesus prayed for those whom he loved. And we're told further that those prayers continue. And Jesus prays for you and me because you are not a passing blip on his radar. You are a priority for him. And so we are the object of his prayers. So our thoughts come to a conclusion. In Moses, we see two priorities, God and people, and two practices which flow, both prayer and proclamation. Moses is in the middle. This is modeled by Moses, exemplified by Christ. And for, I simply want to encourage us that it be true of you and me as well.